This episode is brought to you by Malomo. Malomo offers Shopify and Klaviyo customers the tools to turn shipping from a cost center into a profitable marketing channel through branded shipment emails and order tracking pages. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Nosto, the world's leading commerce experience platform. Nosto enables personalized shopping experiences without the need for IT resources or a long implementation process. Stay tuned for a special offer exclusively for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Cogsy. Cogsy helps modern brands make smarter inventory purchasing decisions that optimize their working capital and frees up cash to fund growth and marketing initiatives. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 72 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today I spoke with Rick Kostick, the co-founder and CEO of 100% Pure. Founded in 2004, 100% Pure has been a pioneer and innovation leader in the natural beauty industry. With a commitment to producing the purest and healthiest products, 100% Pure is on a mission to improve the lives of 6 billion people and animals while also being charitable and giving back to our global community. In this episode, Rick talks with us about his entrepreneurial journey from being born and raised in San Francisco with dreams of becoming a fighter pilot to starting a hair care company for teens with an innovative bottle that now sits in a museum to meeting his co-founders and starting 100% pure from their garage. Rick talks with us about the many challenges he's experienced along the way in building his business, including why they lost Sephora and QVC as partners the strategy behind opening 14 stores in the U.S., and how he expanded the business into China. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CU podcast, don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on our new episode releases happening every Tuesday morning. Until then, we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Rick. Thank you so much for being on the show. I'm really excited to hear your awesome story in building 100% Pure. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Lee. I'm super excited to tell, share my journey with your audience. Awesome. So um, let's start from the very beginning of your childhood, your background. What was it like growing up? Where are you from originally? So I'm actually a Bay, San Francisco Bay Area native. I've never left, was born and raised here. Uh, grew up in Fremont. My parents moved uh, across the Bay for my high school, and then I went to Berkeley, so never left. All right. And did you have any siblings growing up? I did. I had an older sister. I still have an older sister who's down in San Diego. All right. And what did you want to be when you grew up? What was What were you kind of into back in the day? 
you know, I always wanted, thought I was going to be a fighter pilot because I really admired my grandfather, who was a Marine pilot. Wow. Uh, and he fought in World War II and won his Purple Heart. He said he got shot down three times. I think he was the first wave over Japan. And uh, that never happened. I didn't have really good eyesight, and I knew you needed good eyesight. So that kind of dashed those dreams right away. Oh, yeah. My parents, yeah, well, and my parents always thought, and I found this out more recently. My mom told me, I never thought you would become a business person, I thought you would become a doctor because sons, daughters, kids of doctors become doctors. My sister became a PhD doctor focusing on drug delivery and, and working with the uh, companies to pass their FDA compliance. Mm-hmm. And so they thought I would go that same path, and I didn't. That's interesting. So both your parents were doctors. They were. And what kind of doctors were they? So my dad was a radiologist and his path was, I would say, relatively boring compared to my mom's. He was, <laughs> he, he's a very planned out person. So he planned out his whole career, what age he's going to retire. And he has a, a perfect memory on, you know, he reads something. What is it called? A photographic memory. He has yeah. that. Extremely yeah. smart. Wow. But my mother was a family doc and she was more than a family doc. Uh, I can tell you a little bit about her history because it's, it's interesting when she was in medical school, she went to Colorado medical school. She was the only woman in her class and she used to get told by the other docs, you know, what are you doing here? You should, you don't belong here. You shouldn't, uh, you know, you need to be, basically you need to be a male to be a doctor. You should be a nurse. And it was really tough. She told me many, many stories about this. So I admire her resilience pushing through there. And not only did she become a doctor, but she excelled. She became chief of staff of the hospital. She became president of the American Academy of Family Docs. She sat on a U.S. scientific assembly that helps approve drugs that uh, across the U.S. And uh, she even became an associate professor at Stanford. So I'm, I'm very proud of her. And she had a local TV show too, to help people. She really liked helping people. And her favorite patients, she told me, were the ones that couldn't afford it. The ones that couldn't pay her, those were her favorite ones. She did a tattoo removal clinic on the side for free for the community. She would do that on the weekends. And um, she really liked working with the ex-gang members and taking off their tattoos and, and, uh, she was very altruistic. I really admire her. She inspired me. That's awesome. That's um, that's incredible. I'm glad she pushed through. I mean, it kind of sounds like uh, women a few years ago, maybe even still today, that work in tech. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. not easy. Um, she sounds like an amazing, amazing woman and very inspiring. Um, so you didn't go the doctor route, but did you see kind of, you know, looking back, were there any things that you did or that were entrepreneurial, like any early signs that you can look back and say, Hmm, I was, I would very entrepreneurial. Yeah. (laughs) I would sell things to people. Even as a kid, I would find whether it's like picking fruits uh-huh. And selling them to the neighbors, uh, I would always see if the neighbors needed their, you know, flowers, water, pets fed. Always offer my services, and I would make side money that way. I would always try to make money for my parents. What can I do? What can I do? Okay, uh, how much can you pay me for doing that? And I would keep track really diligently in my spreadsheets. And then my godparents uh, actually 
bought me some stock and that got me interested in finance. And so I got really into finance over that watching stock. And whenever I was asked, what do you want for your birthday? I would say, I remember like when I was seven or eight, I asked my dad, I said, I want McDonald's stock. So he bought me some McDonald's stock, for example. You know, it's, wow. I was really into finances. And then when I went to college, graduating high school, I think that's where I actually did more serious work. And I, I was really good at computers. So I just decided, okay, I'll consult with people for tech, for computers, IT consulting. And I started picking up clients and even worked for the university at Berkeley uh, because my coding skills were, I was really good at coding. I don't know. Nice. And that earned me some money. And that actually got me into beauty, that psychic. So how did that happen? That uh, happened because one of my clients was a, it was a hair salon in San Francisco. And my mom would visit that hair salon as well. And so it was a time when I could connect with my mom when she's doing her appointments. And also I can, I would talk to the hair salon owner because I developed his websites. You have to keep in mind the timing of this. This is the 90s. I was a freshman in college. Just to date myself, you know, it was the late 90s. And the World Wide Web was relatively new. And he started talking about product. You know, we would talk about shampoo, conditioner, all sorts of hair products, the brands on the market, what brands were good, the prices they charged. Mm -hmm. And one thing we noticed was that there was no products for teenagers, no prestige hair care products for teenagers. And at that time, teenagers were making money. Like I was a teenager. I was 17 and I was, you know, working, making money. I had spendable income. And we thought, what if we create a really fun hair care line for teenagers? And it dawned on me and I said, yeah, and we can sell it through the web because this worldwide web where I built the website, we can make it e-commerce enabled and the teenagers are on it. Mm. And so that's, that's what got us our start. So we made a collection, five shampoos, five conditioners. We made a great, he had connections with a great designer and that designer designed the bottle and the bottle sits in the San Francisco Museum of Art still today. So I looked this up, right? So I saw yes. it, the, the company is called Philo, if I'm pronouncing it. Philo, Philo, correct. Philo. Okay. And I took a look at this bottle and it reminds me of, I just saw the documentary, I think it's on Netflix called Halston. And it reminds me of the Halston perfume bottle that was like curved. And the whole issue was all about how the manufacturing process, this is like he had to have this bottle that was this weird, odd shape. And it, of course, from a business perspective, all the business people didn't want to do it because it would be costing a lot more to make something custom and, you know, change every, every time you do something custom, it's just like really tough to do on a supply chain level. So I'm curious. How did that end up happening with this bottle of shampoo? So it was, uh, that's a lesson learned. We, we spent too much money on it. <laughs> I mean, we did find a great designer who became more famous. Yves Bihar is, became more famous after that, uh, not because of the bottle, because of other things he did, uh, although he did a great job on the bottle. But the bottle itself, I remember the molds are extremely expensive. And for the amount we were selling, would I do it again. I'm not sure. It was really cool though. I mean, it was yeah. a really cool selling point. It looks point. cool. Yeah. And Darth Vader hat was the cat. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So then what happened from there? So you worked on this company for a while and um, 
you realized it might be a little too expensive or the, the numbers weren't working out? Well, we made a mistake in our distribution is what I, I really learned a lesson on the distribution side. So we had a chance, our, our early customers were Sephora and Nordstrom. And this is how I met Susie, my current business partner too, because she also had a line selling into Sephora and Nordstrom. We had similar distribution. And we had a chance to take it into mass. And so we made a deal with a big grocer to take it to mass. And if you go mass and you're in prestige channels, your prestige don't want you anymore. You know, they don't want to be, if Sephora has your product and you go into grocery stores, it's going to change the brand perception. Sephora is no longer going to really want to carry your product unless your sales are extremely high to justify it. And so that happened. So we did that and that happened. And then we needed closure. We had a board. We raised $800,000 or something for that line. We raised quite a bit because the molds were expensive. Yeah. And so we ended up selling for distributor. And it wasn't, at the end of the day, it wasn't making that much from the business. But the good thing about it is I learned a lot. So it was well worth the education. Yeah. And I also got into formulas because of it, because I worked with the chemist and I started asking the chemist a lot of questions on, you know, what is this ingredient that I can't pronounce? What does that do? Mm -hmm. And he said, why do you care so much about what these ingredients do? He said, that's, and he kind of got irritated every time because I'd ask him such detail about every single ingredient because I was really curious about it. And it made me start to wonder, are these ingredients really healthy for you? And why are there so many of these ingredients in all the products on the market? Why mm -hmm. does everyone formulate the same way? Right. Why do they? Well, there's reasons behind it. So that, that converges my story on how I met uh, Susie because when my dad showed me an article in Forbes profiling Susie as they said she could be the next Estee Lauder, she's making her, uh, she had a line of facial masks she was making out of her dorm room. And as I mentioned, she had the same customers. We were mm -hmm. in the same doors with Sephora and Nordstrom. And I reached out to her and she was also attending UC Berkeley. At the time we were both attending UC Berkeley. And I reached out to her and said, hey, I don't know you. I never met you, but we're, we sell to the same customers. We're doing similar things. You know, let's chat. And eventually it took about a year. We started chatting and we started really thinking about what are these ingredients in the products? And it was to the point where Susie was formulating for other companies and licensing products for them, but they weren't using her formulas exactly. They would use these chemicals to your question. Why do, are all these companies putting these ingredients into the product? Because it makes them cheaper and it makes them stable is really important. It makes them stable so they can last on the shelf, you know, 10 years or, or more and their color doesn't vary, you know, running and developing natural products and extremely pure products. These are the issues we deal with is how do you make sure it doesn't separate your oil and your water phase? How do you make sure the color stays the same batch to batch, product to product? Because in nature, colors change. How do you make sure it can preserve? Because your natural preservatives aren't as strong as your chemical preservatives. It used to be that everyone was using parabens. Now that's cleaned up, but there's still other, other chemicals out there. In fact, there's chemicals called forever chemicals that are 
in products that people are finally figuring out for. It's called Forever because it never leaves your body. Oh, no. What are those? Is there a laundry the, list of? Or there's a laundry things? list. There's a la laundry list of them. And, uh, but they're in things like fragrances have them and a lot of, you know, harsh preservatives, chemicals have them. So there, there's definitely a list in their hearts pronounced. <laughs> Yikes. It's scary out there. It's really sucks that we have to be reading labels of words we've never heard of or know how to pronounce. And we're kind of all just left Googling what's this, what's that. And it's such a mess. It is. But Lee, I forgot to say, that's how we started 100% pure. That's why we, Susie had her contract. She would, she had to sign a contract that was going to say she's either going to license formulas to this big company mm -hmm. or not, and not do anything else. And she was struggling with it. Yeah. And I told her, look, we know how to make product. We've launched brands before. We could launch a brand and we don't know who came up with the name 100% pure. One of us did. And we said, we can call it 100% pure. And her brother was graduating at the time and he could help. So the three of us got together and that's how we launched it with that's the mission of, of making all making very, very healthy products to improve lives. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like it was a little bit of your idea to come together and join forces with each other. Um, right. And so what kind of initial capital? I know you bootstrapped. You have not taken any investor funding, which is incredible. Um, what did you kind of start with? What did you, what were you able to wrangle together back in the day to get things yeah, off the ground? It's incredible. It's also very, very stressful. <laughs> if I had to do it over, I don't know if I'd do it that way. But in initially, we, my, I asked my parents for money. So that's always tough to do, you know, because you want to prove to them you can do things on your own, on your own success. You don't need their help. So they, some people don't even have the option. I've asked. Well, yeah, true, true. Yeah. So, so it was, I was very privileged to be able to do that. So I borrowed 60,000 from my parents mm -hmm. and then James had some cash saved up from his odd jobs he did through college and he loaned 60,000. So we started with about 120 started the business. And what did that get you and how far? You couldn't. So the way we formulate a lot of the contract labs didn't get it. They don't understand it. They don't even, number one, they would push against us because they're like, why do you want to do it that way? They say, they just disagree with us and mm -hmm. we're the customer. Why not just do it our way? It didn't matter. They didn't want to do it our way. They want to right. do it the traditional way to formulate because they're comfortable with that. Mm -hmm. So that was a struggle. And then they said, okay, we'll do it your way, but our MOQs are going to be 5,000 askew back then. And their costs are going to be, you know, $5, $6. So you can do the math. We want to launch 20 SKUs. If you're at 5,000 times 20, you're already at a, you know, a hundred, what is that? A hundred thousand. Mm -hmm. Right. And then times $5, you need half a million to get started just on inventory alone. So that's, that was impossible. We only had 120. So we're, we're struggling what to do. And it dawned on me that, wait a minute, we know how to formulate. We're the formulators. We know how to put everything together. We know how to make the products. Let's just start up our own little manufacturing out of our kitchen. And we ended up converting our garage to do it out in, we were living together in Napa and we made skincare. We made 20, I think we started with 20 SKUs of skincare. And then we leveraged, Susie's had a relationship with the limited corporation who owned Bath and Body Works. Mm -hmm. And nobody remembers this 
I don't think a single person remembers this, but Bath and Body Works had a concept to compete with Sephora back in 2004. And so that's what gave us our start. They had a hundred doors that they turned into multi-brand. Interesting. Very interesting. I'm very familiar with that store, but I don't remember that happening. So that's yeah. uh, very interesting. So, so then what happened from there? You guys were in the garage cooking up some awesome cosmetics. Um, what were some of those first products that you created and, you know, how did you take it from there? Yeah. The, what's interesting is our number one hero products are coffee, bean, caffeine, eye cream. Mm -hmm. We created in the beginning and it's still a top product today. That was one of our original products. Well, I feel so lucky to have one of those in my hands right now. <laughs> <laughs> it is pretty awesome. Um, thank you for sending a bunch of product. I've been trying it out. It's been so awesome and amazing. This uh, this coffee bean caffeine eye cream is really magic. Um, I've also am wearing the lip gloss you sent. It's this fruit pigmented lip gloss. It actually smells really good and tastes good too. And it's actually it's like this sheer gloss where it's not like too thick. It's not too shiny. It looks really natural. So I'm I'm really, really liking this one. Thank you. Thank you. Through the pandemic, lip gloss actually got more popular. Lipstick really? went down a little bit, but lip gloss for some reason yeah, took I off. Think, I think that you guys are onto something with this kind of, I think you guys call it semi-sheer or something like that, which is um, really interesting because, yeah, I think if it's too glossy, it's like, yikes. But if it's like that perfect middle ground, which you guys have done. I think it's just like a great daily Thank you. Um, thing. And this um, aromatherapy oil, this peppermint oil, it's like I carry it with me everywhere. It smells so good and it's a stress reliever for sure. You, you need that and you can use it all over your temples, your forehead, the back of your neck, everywhere. Nice. And it smells amazing. Um, this French lavender hand butter cream is awesome smells everything just smells good and it looks awesome it's and i've been trying a bunch of these things and it's just so incredible what you guys have done with it being vegan cruelty free gluten free non-toxic um i just really love the concept and what you guys are doing thanks so much thank for you stuff thank you so, and all natural fragrances is important because you don't want any artificial fragrances that goes back to the forever chemicals and phthalates and hormone disruptors and things like that Right. And the color coming from fruit, which is really cool. I mean, because you put this stuff on your mouth, you know, it's right. Like, it's crazy. So that happened. That happened because Susie was picking blackberries and she showed me her fingers and she said, look, Rick, look, look at how these blackberries are staining my fingers. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've ever picked blackberries, you'll see this stain is hard to get off your fingers. Yeah. And she said, how do we put this in a product? And so we put it in a, you know, we, the first product we made with it in the lab was we just put it in a base of butters like shea butter or, or cocoa butter, you nice. know, you just add the pigment in, uh, melt the butter and you have a product that you can use as a blush, as a lip. And then from there, we perfected it over 15 years of innovation. And one of the things that people don't really know about us is we led a lot of the innovations in the natural side of the industry. A lot of the preservatives you see in clean today are ones we were the first to use in in beauty, like potassium like sorbate, sodium benzoate was a combination I used early on. I took from the food industry. It wasn't used in beauty. It was just something I noticed. Mm -hmm. uh, phenoxyethanol was another one. We we used one Japanese honeysuckle I really like. It got a bad rap, and I think it's unfair. I disagree with the, the negative things said about it, but we don't have to go in that on this podcast. 
Um, that's unfortunate because I really like that one. And um, so those are some examples. We figured out methods to emulsify in production using high shear and different uh, uh, different equipment. And you know, it's really an art when you're making a natural product. Really, art has a lot to do with it. You have to be very, very precise on things to get it to mix extremely well. And then even our coffee bean caffeine eye cream. Now on the market, there's other caffeine eye creams. It's quite common, but mm. we were the original. So we're the OG on, on that one. Garnier was the first to copy us. That was the first thing I saw oh, uh, as far as the second one, but it took yeah. them a few years. The OG and caffeine. Yeah. Um, that's awesome. So the company was founded in 2004. You guys have been in business for a long time. You've got so much, I'm sure you've been learning over the years. What are some of the key takeaways or, you know, things that you've learned the most about building a business? Oh, my goodness. You have to really want it. I mean, there's so many challenges as an entrepreneur. It's very rewarding, too. But you definitely go through a lot. And, you know, I don't think it's easy. I don't I know. I'm sure there's people out there that will say it's easy, but I, you know, you have to have a, that inner drive and really want it because at the end of the day, you know, I read this study and I can't, I'm, unfortunately, I can't give you the source of the study because I don't remember the source, but it was that the average entrepreneur makes less on a per hour basis than if they went the path of just working for someone else. Yeah. So if it's really about the money, you should work for someone else. You'll make more on average. You're more likely to make more by working for someone else going that path. So yes. you have to have a passion for something more than money. It can't be about the money. You're not going to succeed. If it's just about the money, maybe you will. But from my perspective, it's going to be highly likely that you won't. You got to have something more than just the money. Yeah. Starting a company is very high risk. Um, there's a lot of success stories out there and I'm guilty of providing a lot of those, you know, but there's a lot of, there's a lot more failures. Um, there should be a show about just, you know, interviewing a bunch of failures, like uh, family companies that are being nobody like, would want to listen though. It's, but that's there's very so true. Lessons that are learned in those, in those experiences. Though. You learn from me. I fail so many times. Exactly. Oh my goodness. That's the other thing as an entrepreneur, you fail so many times, but you have to keep getting up and pushing yourself forward. And you always hear about the successes and they always seem like they're overnight, mm -hmm. but no success is overnight. There's so much hard work and grit that goes behind all the success you hear about. Yeah. It, it's not that easy. Tell us about some of the most challenging moments you've had in building the company. Like what's one of the biggest challenges you've had to overcome? Oh, there were so many. It's hard to say the biggest. I, I can give you some examples and I'll probably think of bigger ones as I give you some examples. So you know, when we developed our fruit pigment cosmetics, we took it to QVC in 2006. And we lost the QVC business in 2009 during the recession. Mm -hmm. And that was nearly, that was a, the bulk, the majority of our sales at the time. And when you lose business with QVC all, or any home shopping, all your inventory comes back to you because you own that inventory. It's consignment. Mm. Wow. And so we had... You know, I think we were around $6 million in sales at the time. And so, and maybe 4.5 was from QVC. Wow. And so all the inventory is coming back and it's like, what do we do? How do we pay our bills? What are we going to do with all this inventory? Because it's aging inventory, you know, cosmetics, you can't keep it around. It, it, it doesn't last. 
And when it came back, it made me realize, what are we good at? What, what are our talents? What do I really understand? And I, I realized, I really understand the direct-to-consumer business, the digital business. So maybe we just need to lean in on the direct-to-consumer business. And that's what we did is I really focused on the web side of the business. And I used all that inventory coming back to run gift with purchases, all these fantastic promotions that our customers just ate up and they really loved. And it worked. And we were able to, we decreased. We did, but I made up for the shortfall. And we, I think we ended the next year at 5.3. So we went from six to 5.3, but we've backfilled, you know, a good 4 million of that business. Wow. So that, that was a big risk. I can tell you, I remember another, another challenging thing is when you're with partners. So I remember losing Sephora. Mm. So we had Susie's original brand when we met and we came together, we put it in Sephora, we kept it around, we kept it in Sephora and we managed it. And we lost Sephora primarily because we were having issues with our natural formulations being messy on the tester shelves. Oh, really? Because we were making things with fruits and vegetables and, and think about it, it got sticky and, and uh, we weren't the best, you know, it was hard because it doesn't, the natural formulas don't work like your traditional formulas. This is why you traditional formulas use the chemicals because they can make them perfect and look nice on the shelf and, and not be messy. And, uh, but ours got messy. And so we, we lost the count. This was even before the QVC and that was tough. That was like, most of our sales at the time and keeping the partner, you know, when you're working with partners, it's hard not to blame each other. You have to really ensure that you blame processes, not people. Hmm. And especially if it's your business partner, you don't, you know, get at each other. So that was very challenging. Another one was we went through, I don't know how much I can talk about it, but I, I can talk on a broad level, we went through like an employee lawsuit early on. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) some broad overhead with someone we employed for three months and we spent like a half a million on on that over the course of two, three years. But really the worst of it was how it impacted the partners and the partnership. Mm. You know, it, it, it was really challenging on that side of things you mean like retail partners with all with all this no i mean the founders like like uh uh, the three of us together when you're going through a real challenge like that yeah it's uh it definitely gets tense and and creates challenges that way you have to really you know working with someone for so long takes that's also an art that's also something you have to work on like any relationship you have to work on it it doesn't just happen naturally What are some of the things that you do or would advise, you know, advice that you have for working on a business type of partnership? Like, how do you keep it healthy? How do you um, deal with conflict resolution? That's really important. Communication is extremely key on that front. Mm-hmm. So you want to have your regular modes of communication. I've heard stories of business owners over time where they don't talk to their partner for long periods of time. And it amazes me. Yeah. How does that uh, happen? How do you yeah. put business together without talking? <laughs> I mean, are they just, just like over the in left thing. field, you're in right field, and we just hope we end up hitting, scoring a goal? Like, how does that? Yeah. So don't do that. That's not healthy. That's not healthy. And then imagine when you're a bigger company and you have staff, employees, imagine how, what's your staff thinking? Because they're picking up on all this. You think oh, yeah. maybe it's hidden behind doors, but 
Mm-hmm. You know, the grapevine is works very, very well in a lot of businesses. Of course. I mean, I think every employee just like loves to talk, you know, it's like, what else do they talk about? Let's talk about some drama in the office, right? Yeah, especially with the founders and, and the partners. So, you know, <laughs> right. you really want to work on those relationships and communication, talking things out, getting aligned. And especially when you're going to disagree on some things. So figuring out who is in charge of what space, who gets to be the final decision maker in what area, that's really important. Because if you're both making the decision or all the partners are making the decision in one area and you have different ideas, it's really tough to move forward. We'll get right back to our show, but first a word from our sponsors. Malomo is on a mission to help brands create lasting relationships with their customers. Did you know that the average customer tracks their shipments around four to five times per order? And during Black Friday or Cyber Monday, that can sometimes double? That's a lot. Why not use that time with excited customers to drive sales and build your brand with a tool like Malomo? With Malomo, you can use branded shipment emails and order tracking pages to drive additional purchases by showing new products, sales, subscription options, and other engaging content simply by being proactive and managing delivery communications. Get 30% off your first three months with Malomo today by going to gomalomo.com slash CEO. That's G-O-M-A. L-O-M-O dot com slash stairway to CEO. Nosto enables e-commerce brands to deliver personalized digital shopping experiences at every touchpoint across every device. Designed for ease of use, Nosto empowers brands to build, launch, and optimize one-to-one omni-channel marketing campaigns and digital experiences without the need for dedicated IT resources or a lengthy implementation process. Leading brands in over 100 countries use Nosto to grow their business and delight their customers. As a Stairway to CEO listener, you can take advantage of an exclusive 10% discount off your first six months. Learn more or request a demo by going to nosto.com slash Stairway to CEO. That's N-O-S-T-O dot com slash Stairway to CEO. Cogsy empowers modern brands to be more agile and adaptive when it comes to their inventory. Leverage Cogsy's prioritization, predictive analytics, and automated purchase flow to always have the right stock on hand at the right time. Not only that, but Cogsy has an innovative plan B for those times when you do run out of stock. You can run back orders that keep customers happy and beat the conversion rate of back-in-stock notifications. Get your first two months free when you sign up by going to cogsy.com slash stairway to CEO. That's C-O-G-S-Y dot com slash stairway to CEO. In the scenario that the final decision maker for that, you know, let's say it's marketing or something, and they have the final decision on all things marketing, but you don't really agree at all, like pretty strongly about what they want to do, um, but they're supposed to have the say. So then what? How do you approach that kind of conflict? So now you're talking about, uh, now you're talking about my marketing, I'm just thinking my marketing team is going to listen to this. And now oh, I need to be no, careful. No, so not yours, say, but... just in general. And from a founder level, from like the co-founder level, because you were talking uh, about final say. And maybe okay. So say the bad. marketing team, your marketing team has a different vision than say one of the founder or the CEO for that matter. Is that what you were saying? saying Co-founder conflict. So like the co-founder is, you know, more of a marketing person and they have this idea of what they want to do, but your CEO. We've had this. 
we yeah. we've had this we've had this so for example i'll give you a real life example of this i think you'll be okay the um uh the partners told me we're too promotional we're running too many promotions and the thing is uh from my perspective i need to hit our financial numbers mm -hmm. and if we pull back on promotions too much we're not gonna get our customer acquisition high enough and also our sales will be low and and one of and the way we've modeled it we don't have wide wholesale distribution through other partners like we don't have a major account like sephora or ulta uh, i would love to but we we don't have one so we're highly d to c we're direct through our website mm -hmm. when you have a wholesale partner a lot of times you can run those promotions through your partners so you can keep your branded site very elevated very prestige and you can promote let your partners promote and generate the turnover in product but since we don't have that, we need to generate high product sales through our website. So we run exciting promotions yeah. through our website. So with the co-founder conflict, you would just, who would make that decision? If you're- So they let me make the decision. They just told me they disagree. So that's the toughest thing is they disagree. And I can't convince them. You know, I gave you the explanation, but right. it's not good enough. So, you know, those are challenges. At the end of the day, I hope that the numbers justify it. You know, the mm -hmm. fact that we're growing and we're growing at this growth rate that they see that the things we're doing is working. Yeah, there's got to be it sounds like a lot of trust involved um, with the person who's making those final decisions and, you know, hoping that everything is that way, decided that way for a good reason. And it should turn out just fine. Trust. Uh, you nailed it. Trust is the most important thing. Our fastest years of growth are the years where we trusted each other the most the three founders those were our fastest year when we grew 30 40 percent that's wow i would say that's really important is to if you support each other 100 and you trust each other the overall organization is going to thrive because yep. of that and be at its highest level so trust and support are key for a founding team for sure for sure without it it's going to slow you down it, it's extremely key and so you guys have expanded to China. I'm curious, you know, obviously it's the largest beauty market along with the USA, but you know, what kind of made you guys decide to expand to China and how did that happen? What was that like? Yeah, so that's that's interesting because China has always been on my eye because it was always the third, now it's the second, but it was always the third largest market. It used to go US, Japan, China, Brazil. Or originally, it was actually U.S., Japan, Brazil, China, and then China surpassed Brazil, and then China surpassed Japan. So I always knew that one day it's going to surpass the U.S. as the biggest mm -hmm. economy. So we should try to get our foot in the door because it's a huge market that where we can spread our mission to even more people because it's our mission to improve the lives of 6 billion people and animals. The U.S. is, what, 300 million people? And a lot of animals, I don't know how many animals, a lot of animals, yeah. but China is even more so. China has a billion people and even more magnitude of animals on top of it. So I felt like we really need to stay true to our mission. And if we're really trying to stay true to our mission, we need to be where the people are around the world. And people are in China, people are in the US. So it's not like we're ignoring the US. It's just natural to think where are we going to focus some energy in the future? Well, let's focus on. China. And so I didn't get an opportunity to, I didn't know how I was going to answer China. I explored it a bunch of different ways. And this was throughout 2013, 14. I looked at what's called, you hear them, 
referred to as TPs, trade partners. Mm -hmm. They're people who will represent your brand in China and they'll handle the marketing. Uh, the predominant channel for selling for consumer goods in China is Tmall. And the other thing with China is we don't animal test. And China would not let you register your products if you animal test. There's a way around that where you can ship cross-border and you don't have to register your products. So that was the way I planned to do it. I said, okay, we're not, we're not going to take any risk. We're not going to animal test, but we can sell cross-border. And so Tmall has a, a platform, Tmall Global, for brands that sell cross-border. So that's where I identified we'll sell to China in. Mm -hmm. And when I got quotes from the, the TPs, it was roughly going to work out to around you know, $20,000 a month to enter China to do the marketing and hire the TP. And I thought, you know, 20,000, why are they so, to me, that was expensive at the time. Right. And I was thinking, why are they so expensive? Right. 20,000 a month, I should be able to hire my own people in China to do this. And that way they can devote 100% of their time to marketing 100% pure and spreading our mission throughout China. Right. Rather and so that's the route I chose. Oh, okay. So right. <laughs> So you didn't really go this kind of like agency model thing with the trade partners. You, how did you just find your own people to run the business in China? So I, I ended up forming a subsidiary. And also as part of that journey, I met my wife who's from China. And I just had a son a year ago and he's, so my son is half Chinese. And uh, uh, so my wife immigrated from China when she was in her 20s. So she's still a Chinese citizen today. And I formed the company in her city, which made it easy because then I could visit her family. You know, we can go there and then I can conduct the business and I will know people to help because there's an ecosystem there, you know, mm -hmm. connected, you know, through different connections and banks, government, things like that is really important. And the other thing in China is you really need someone you can trust because they can run away with your money very easily. I heard about stories where like you buy a company car like a van mm -hmm. and the, you hire a driver and the driver drives away with the van and you don't see him. You don't see your van again <laughs> or the dri no. driver, you know, things like that you, you right. hear about. So I knew the, the first key hire was really, really important. I need to develop a relationship with that key hire. So I hired my general manager and he's still my general manager today and really wow. worked on that relationship. Where did you find yeah. him? Was he a friend of your wife's? No, we just did uh, our regular job. I had my HR in the U.S. help me with a job search. And I had actually had someone on my accounting team who spoke Chinese, who was actually from that same city, wow. go with me and, and help me translate because I don't speak Chinese. I've taken years of Chinese, but I don't speak it entirely fluently. So I need a translator. It's a tough language. It is. Sure. Um, well, that's amazing. So, I mean, and this person is still with you, which is so impressive. Um, so business-wise, you know, how big is your business in China versus the U.S.? Is it, you know, what's that look like? So it's, it's about, today it's about 5% trending towards 10% of the business. So it's faster growing than the rest of the business. Hmm. But we operated unprofitably for many years to grow it. And now I've given the instructions that we need to operate profitably. So we're slowing down growth a little bit to make it more profitable. Mm. So in China, you, China is a, I would, I would call it a little tricky market because you can lose a lot of money very easily. Interesting. A lot of people, I think, have the opposite idea. 
you know, that you hear the stories there. Yeah. Yeah. You launch there. It, and, it, oh, again, bucks. It's, it's back to the stories because there are a few success stories that you hear about that overnight they do a hundred million in sales. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can do it. We did a half million sales in three minutes using an influencer on, on Taobao live. Yeah. That happens in, in China, can, in China and you can scale up from there. Yeah. But it's, it takes a lot of work. It's not, and, and a lot of luck, a little bit of luck and a lot of work. And so in terms of influencers, what's your strategy here in the U.S. with influencers? How have you leveraged them? Has that been successful for the brand? It's interesting you talk, you, you ask that because it goes back to the marketing buy-in. I wanted to work with influencers right when they started, but I couldn't get buy-in across my team, um, everyone, founders, every, like no one... Everyone thought I was crazy that I wanted to work with when this rising this? class called influencers. Yeah, what year was oh, that? I just remember being in our, we had a place in Alameda. We were operating out of 3,000 square feet in, it must have been 2008. Must have oh, been, yeah, re it was really days. early. That's super It was early. really early days. I wanted to jump on early. I, I really believed in it. Yeah. And uh, that was I was like I the day of the, the blog. That's like when blogs yeah. were really big. Yeah. So, so that's the kind of, so not even the Instagram influencer was like existing yet. It was just bloggers. Yeah. No Instagram at this yeah. point. Facebook was just coming out. So like mm -hmm. 2000, it might've been 2009 or 10. I can't remember. It was around those years. And uh, we jumped on Facebook early because of that. But more recently, we partnered with, so influencers work really well in China. You have to have that as part of your strategy. And I use China as kind of the model of e-commerce of the future because they bypassed the whole desktop computer face. They went straight to mobile. Because hmm. nobody had desktops. Nobody has desktops at home in China that I know of. Not yet. Yeah, no one I know of does. They all use their mobile devices. Mm -hmm. So they bypassed desktop, went to mobile, and their e-commerce is extremely advanced because of that. And so I see China as the sales are done through a marketplace team mall, and they're primarily driven by influencers and the influencers in China, they make tons of money. It is insane. Like 50 million a year in USD, hundred million a year USD. It's, it's But it sounds really, like they're selling a lot of product and maybe it's worth it. It's worth it. It's, it's worth, <laughs> I mean, they're making money and it's worth it. It's just incredible amounts. I can't believe it, but uh, it's happening. And I think that's the potential in the U S is that influencers could potentially get near that level. but. It's it's been kind of a roller coaster ride working with influencers because it's hit or miss. It's really hard to identify the ones that work. Right. And I keep going back to China for the example because we have more experience working with influencers there. But I, we worked with a top influencer, and it didn't work. And it was because she wasn't she didn't identify with the brand, and we realized that she's selling like for clothing. And that's like a no-no with us. Like we had, I known that I wouldn't have partnered with her to begin with, but yeah, like she wasn't aligned with our cruelty-free vision and our, our veganism. And then we partnered with an influencer who was very much into animal, loved animals, animal rights, and her fans also cared about animals a lot. And she worked really well. She was a smaller influencer, but it worked really well. Mm -hmm. In the US, it's the same you need to find the influencers that identify with your values, with your core values and your mission. And it, when you find that, it can be a great 
match. Like I think we work with to throw someone out there like Fully Rock. Christina is a food influencer we found and we work with her on beauty and she's amazing and her core values and the things she identifies with matches entirely with our brand. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting that you say food influencer, because I think one of the misconceptions out there uh, in working with influencers is that your beauty brand, you should work with beauty influencers, not <laughs> outside of that, right? But really, it's a holistic lifestyle. And um, it's, it's wellness, beauty and wellness yes. are converging. So you're going to see a lot of beauty brands become wellness brands. Even us to some extent, I feel we're a wellness brand. So yeah. we're working on some things within beyond beauty. Nice. Right. So the lines are getting blurred between what we eat and what we put on our skin. That's right. And typically you'll see what, what's interesting with the beauty industry is you will see trends happen in food and then follow into beauty. This is typically how it happens. You can, you can watch it like an ingredient get popular in the food side. And then you'll notice, oh, it just got popular in the beauty side. What's another example other than the caffeine coffee bean stuff that's been happening in the in the that you guys basically invented or created for the beauty industry? What's a what's a food that's happening right now that you've seen a trend that's happening now in beauty because of the food trend? Well, there's there's always, you know, CBD got very popular, but there's another herb, ashwagandha. Yeah. Uh, that one was a very popular herb for on the internal side. And it was more supplement than food. Right. But there's a lot of topical benefits from ashwagandha. And so, and it's because what you eat is good for you as an antioxidant and mm -hmm. antioxidants are great for your skin and your skin is also ingesting. Right. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, cause that, uh, ashwagandha ingredient is very popular, especially in drinks, beverages. It's all over the, the beverage aisle of Erwan, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with Erwan. It's a grocery store here on the West coast, mostly in LA that, you know, does, has amazing kind of new brands there that are like, um, you know, plant-based and up and coming. It's I, a think, place to discover. I think we might be talking to them. Actually, I remember my yeah, uh, I was like, head of sales. actually should be in yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, we might end up being in there. Yeah, I hope they expand their selection of um, skincare and beauty and stuff like that. Because right now it's kind of a grocery store with like one aisle, half an aisle <laughs> with like skincare stuff. So um Cool. Um, so you guys, I, you know, you have lots of stores. Um, what's kind of your retail strategy in opening up your own stores in the U.S.? I think you have like 14 stores now. Yes. And it's that's also been quite an experience. So our first store, we opened in Berkeley and it was literally Susie and I were having coffee because we lived in Berkeley. You know, we went yeah. to school there and we we're commuting and we stopped at a cafe and have coffee and we saw a space for lease. And we just said, I want, and this was 2000, 2006 wow. or 2005. Mm -hmm. Gosh, I can't even remember, but we just said, I wonder what it's like to open a retail store. And we saw for lease, we called the landlord and he didn't want to give us the lease because he never heard of us. We don't have financials. And we begged him and told him we'll pay full asking and do whatever increases he wanted. And he said, okay, we'll give you a shot. And then we went to Ikea and picked up shelves and went to a sign shop, bought a sign, and then went to Office Depot, bought that cash registered, and we opened shop in literally two weeks <laughs> on, a, on a shoestring. And But the thing is, the community really supported us. The Berkeley community has been amazing supporting our Elmwood store 
there. And even to this day, that's been our original store. We've kept it. We've since updated it. So it's no longer the Ikea shelves. <laughs> right. it's, it's a uh, little fancier. Yes, yes. So that got us our start. And then the QVC business took off in 2006. So I, I forgot, we hired a manager of the store and we kind of forgot about it and just let it run and didn't put much, when I mean forgot about it, like we didn't put much energy or attention into it. We let the local, our, we empowered our local team to manage it, run it and grow it. And I realized in when, especially when we lost QVC, I realized we need some alternative avenues of distribution. And when I said, let's focus on the web, I was thinking, let's focus on the, the D to C altogether, direct to consumer through web supplemented by brick and mortar. And I showed Susie and James, my business partners, I said, look, Berkeley, it makes money. And it's a great way where we can connect with the consumer and they can try our products in person and we can educate them in person. Why don't we try another store? And so they said, okay. And we opened up and spent more money on a Santana Row in San Jose location. That was our second one. And then the San Francisco Airport Authority walked through there and said they liked our concept. And they liked our staff, how knowledgeable they are. And they asked us to open a store at the airport, which is it, it's a lot harder than just being asked and going in there. You actually have to submit a bid and go through a process, and it's a lot of work. Hmm. But it worked. And that became our number one store, was our San Francisco airport store, which we, we closed down during the pandemic. And I have to say thank you to the airport because they let us close down early from our lease due to that. Wow. Which, which was nice of them. But that's still a bummer. But, that's still a bummer. I mean, COVID, what other challenges did you guys face with COVID? Well, well, here's the thing. So we had those three doors mm -hmm. and those three doors were very successful. They're in a home market. We had a lot of support and right. I thought it was pretty much you just lease a place, open up the doors and you're successful. <laughs> that's what it seemed like. Uh, right. Of course. So I went on a binge and I opened up uh, gosh, we went up to 12 stores. So I opened nine more stores within like 18 months. Wow. That's and we, and we got banks to loan us for the build out for the capex, and uh, yeah, and I learned my lesson that you can't just open doors and expect it to be success. Especially we signed a lot of mall leases, mm -hmm. and they were expensive, and I thought they were expensive because they could drive a lot of revenue, but uh, now in retrospect, our we're going to have to pivot our retail a little bit because not every store is profitable. Right. And the division as a whole has struggled, especially through COVID. We had to close doors. And then, you know, now we're fully open, but we're not entirely recovered. We're almost there. We're almost there. What was your decision-making process to opening up a store in a specific location? What were you looking for most? I change it now. But back then, I empowered, I, I partnered with some people who I thought were experts in making those decisions and I really empowered them to do it. And in retrospect, I should have been more involved in it and been a little more strategic on the locations. Cause now I realize the locations that work for us are more inner city. Uh, so say downtown areas, open air where people are out like Santana row makes sense in San Jose. It's an open air lifestyle center. Uh, we're down in University Town Village uh, or Town Center in San Diego, UTC. That's an outdoor mall. So like an outdoor where there's other activities going on. That makes sense. A community store makes sense where the community comes down and supports it. 
but it, our retail strategy can't, I, I don't want it to make up more than 10 or 15% of our total revenue at any time. I feel like it's, it's great to supplement your digital business, but it's not going to be the core of our business. It's just another avenue that we can contact with the consumer. And then we're also leveraging our retail staff because we have this army of experts in our, uh, our retail staff. And so we're leveraging them to talk to consumers through our website. You know, they man our chat or women, our chat, man and women on our chat. Mm-hmm. And so when you go on our product page and you ask a question, it goes to our store associate and they can chat with you on video and show you product and demo product for you. Nice. Give you a consultation. And then they're doing master classes through social. And I'm trying to incentivize them to create YouTube videos. And uh, so creating content They're I, really the, the store of the future, the retail associates are content creators, in yes. my opinion. Yes. I mean, Macy's, they already are. You know, Macy's Style Crew um, is like an influencer program for their retail associates, essentially. Um, they've been doing- I actually didn't know about that. I'll, I'll look yeah. into that. The only reason I know that is because I, I worked at Grin. And so I've, I've had my, you know, head in the influencer space for a while. Um, and yeah, worked with influencers on my own company, Wearaway and, and stuff like that. So I've been in the space for a while. But yes, that is exactly right. That is the future. Uh, retail associates are basically content creators and influencers now. Um, yeah, that is the future. So what's the biggest thing you've learned about becoming a leader, a founder and a CEO? Oh, that's a really good question. The biggest thing I learned about becoming a leader CEO is you learn so much. I don't know what the biggest lesson is. It's, it's really, there's, it's not about the financials. There's more to it than that. It's really about your mission. The fact that if I look back and said, wow, we really helped make a change across the industry. That's really cool. I don't know if that's a learning or that's like the biggest takeaway I had from it. And also the fact that I hope that the staff that I've helped grow and help coach to see them go on and accomplish great things. That's, that's also really cool to see that. Um, that as far as what I learned, I've learned so much. I, I can't think of one singular thing. <laughs> it's just all moshed together, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, well, so being a founder, you know, leader, anything, it, it takes so much persistence. Um, what is your why or, or how do you stay resilient? How do you persevere? You know, I, I, I have a personal mission and I get conflicted with my personal mission because I don't know if, you know, some people would say, maybe it's your ego. I don't, I don't know, but my personal mission, I don't care if it's known that it's me or not, but my personal mission is that I want to make sure that while I'm on this earth or in this universe, that I make a difference here, that I'm here for, that I, I have a purpose, mm-hmm. that I make this place a better place. I make this, now you can't just say earth anymore. I make this universe a better place than when I first came into it. Yeah. That's a pretty big why that probably helps you get up in the morning. Yeah. I don't want to be here just to be here. I don't want to be here just to exist and just flow through and just exist. I want to actually improve things. It's so easy to just keep flowing and saying, Oh yeah, maybe I'll work there. I'll just keep doing this. There's a lesson. There's a lesson, a lesson doing business is you have to take the risk. You have to do it. You have to make a decision with limited information. 
That's really, really important. You have to move forward. Mm -hmm. And who cares if you fail? Because as long as you're successful 60% of the time, as long as your decisions are right, 60% of the time, you're going to make progress. But if you never, ever take the risk and you never do it, then you're not going to make the progress. So you have to be okay with failure. You you it can't bother you. It's got to be like water off your back. Nothing. Yeah. Move on. If you could change anything about your journey, what would you have changed? Maybe take investor money? Yeah, I, I think I would try to grow it faster. Like if I could transport what I know now into what I knew then, mm. I would say try to grow faster. Don't be afraid of taking other people's money to try to, and even diluting yourself, it's fine. And even seeking the money, we didn't seek the money and grow faster to accomplish your mission. Really focus on the mission. What kind of qualities um, do you think make up a strong entrepreneur? Because I don't know if everybody's cut out for it. What do you think? Resilience is one. You have to be resilient. You have to be able to handle failure. If you can't handle failure, it's going to be really tough for you because as an entrepreneur, you're going to fail. We all do. In fact, the most successful entrepreneurs fail the most. When's a time that you failed? Oh, so many times. Gosh, whether it's like uh, we wired money to Korea once for mascara tubes and the guy ran away with the money. Is that a failure? That was early on. <laughs> I mean, um, I feel like I was a, I learned a lot in management and I would say I failed as a manager when I was younger because I, I wasn't, um, I, I would say I didn't empower enough. I was too micromanaging. I just wasn't a good manager. I was too micromanaging and too, um, yeah, that's. Well, so how did I, you learn to be a better manager? studied a lot studied and read you have to that's the other thing you have to read a lot if you're a voracious reader that you that will help you quite a bit so i read all i can study all i can take classes all i can and for example even right now i'm constantly learning i'm in harvard's owner president management program right now that's to make me a better leader that's the reason you're why studying. i'm doing it i'm studying that's amazing what else have you studied on the side to kind of help you uh, level up your skills. I I joined uh, YPO, an organization that really focuses on lifelong learning. And so they offer tons of programs to help sharpen your skills. So I always take advantage of those programs. There's another program. Uh, but if you you're not at the level of YPO, you can join. I think EOS is the other program. I got that right for smaller companies. Mm -hmm. So you, you join associations can help you learn even more. I highly recommend you network, network, network. Uh, I, that's another kind of key element of success is having a very strong network. You got to focus on your network. I would say my network is extremely strong. If I need something or need access to someone, I can get it because of my strong network. Yeah. And how do you maintain those relationships with your network? That's a challenging part that's a really good question because you have limited time yeah and so you have to work on it and you know you might want to break out who are your close people your close friends and how often do you see them and you have to work on it i need to you know make a phone call and even put on your calendar if you need to you have to be very organized 
as you, you know, as you grow. And so you can use your calendar and put on your calendar. I'll contact these people once a month. I'll check in with this circle of friends once a quarter, keep in touch with these people once a year. Yeah. It's tough because your network, gets really huge. And <laughs> yeah. That's a challenge. Yep. It's a lot of people to be reaching out to and managing. Um, what about meetings? Like what's some of the nitty gritty stuff, day-to-day ops that you think really move the needle in efficiency and, and whatnot? You, once you get to the point, you really have to rely on other people to drive things forward. That's where you get to your next level of challenge. That's like, okay, leveled up, new challenges. It doesn't come for me anymore. I can't drive things forward because it's only one of me. I have to rely on other people. So as far as meetings go, those one-on-ones are extremely important where you're, so it used to be, so speaking of a manager, the way I did one-on-ones when I was an early manager is I used to just drill down, like ask question, answer, update question, answer. And it wasn't fun for the staff to do that. I remember my mom loaned me this lights um, from the hospital. It's like one of those spotlights. And I did a meeting with my supply chain manager back when we were a tiny company. And I set up the light in the warehouse with a folding table and we had chairs and I just asked her, where's this shipment? Where is that shipment? Where is this? And okay, what's the update on this? And later she told me, yeah, later she told me it was like interrogation. So that's what not to do in meetings. So now in meetings, it's really, how can I help my staff? I really look forward to my one-on-ones because it's my ability. I can really help my staff be successful. So we look at you, you need KPIs to manage KPI, key performance indicators. I think most people know it now. You need KPIs, metrics to run your business mm-hmm. off of. It's extremely important you get those in place to drive it forward and you, you set goals and everyone knows what they are and you focus on them. Yeah, absolutely. So and so we drill place- into that in the meetings. And then what are your biggest issues? Tackling the issues is the most important thing you can do with your direct reports. Help them through their most challenging issues. Do you think that would have worked as a very early team back in that interrogation room you created? Would would that different style of management be suited for a smaller team? I think it would have worked better. I agree. I should have empowered her more. She was even an MBA grad, and I treated her like that. So I feel very embarrassed about the way I used to manage. But yeah, I think I if think I we all do, I think, yeah. I think everybody who's ever managed anyone for the first time, like I feel bad for that person, right? It's just like, yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't know what I was doing. You know, for we sure. all figure it out. For sure. <laughs> so what kind of final advice do you have, I guess, for any of the listeners tuning in um, that are thinking about starting a business or are in it? They're in the trenches right now. Um, what advice do you have? Two, I would say two, two things. One is just, if you're thinking about something, trying to make a decision on something, just do it. And then trust in life. You really have to trust in life. You just make the decision, you do it, and then believe that life wants to grow you because it does. Mm. I like that. You're here for a journey and, and you just believe, just trust in life. Or maybe, you know, for some people it's God, trust in God, trust in God, trust in life because they want to grow you. They want you to succeed. Don't push against it. So if you're struggling to make a decision, just move forward. Don't wait until it's perfect. Mm-hmm. You know, just move forward with imperfection is okay. It's more about how often you do things rather than how perfect you are on something. Interesting. How often you do things. 
Yeah, how often you make decisions because you make a decision and you fail. Mm -hmm. Then you make another decision and you're successful. Then you make another decision, you fail. And you make another decision, you're successful. And then hopefully, as long as you're successful, more than your failures or your successes are bigger, you'll ultimately be more successful. Yeah, as long as you're learning from the failures, right? <laughs> hopefully, you're learning from them, right? <laughs> don't get, don't let them frustrate you, and you you have to let it go. That's the other thing. You got to let it go. If you fail, you you don't want to. If you let it eat you up, you're not going to move forward. Or you beat yourself up over it, which is even worse. What do you yeah. do to? What do you do to? I'm sure by now the muscle is so strong it just is water off your back. But back in the day, I'm sure it's like really tough to build that muscle of resilience. I mean, how'd you do it? How do you, is it just, you know, what tips and tricks do you have for that? I, I have some really good ones. I'm really big on mindfulness. And so one, and I've taken, it's always good to have a coach. I recommend everyone have a coach. If you can and afford it, have a coach. Like an executive and coach? I would say a blend of kind of like a life executive coach mm -hmm. to help you grow as a person. And I had a really good coach, Anna Scott was her name out of Oakland. I highly recommend her if if anyone hears this that uh, is nearby her, but she taught me really great lessons on dealing with those type of situations. So one of the things you do is you start to get curious and you get curious and you take yourself out of your body because there's, there's two of you, you want to really ground yourself and to ground yourself, you take yourself out. So there's your ego and there's the real you. So it's get curious and look, kind of look at yourself from the outside. And say like, wow, it's so interesting that this other person is affecting you, Rick. Isn't that interesting how this other person is making you feel so upset? Mm. That's so interesting. Just get curious. And it takes you out of that moment and grounds you. So you can do that. Another thing was taught by, um, I like this book, Positive Intelligence by Shirzad Charmaine. And he teaches you how to do these what he calls positive intelligence kind of moments. Mm -hmm. And you can do them in almost microseconds or in like two seconds. You rub your fingers together and just focus on the feeling of your fingers together. And it just draws your attention away, draws your mind away from that stress and grounds you again and takes you out of that moment. Yeah. So these are two, two techniques I do. One is remove yourself from your body by getting curious and looking down at yourself and just find it interesting that you're feeling that way. And the other is to do like a, it's kind of like a short mindfulness, just rub your fingers together or feel your toes. You know, you can do anything to distract your attention into one part of your body and it centers you. Or tapping. Have you heard of tapping? I haven't. Yeah. I'm new to it. My sister is like a transformational life coach and she like teaches people how to, you know, cope with these different emotions and mindsets and change your mindset through this like tapping stuff that she does. It's, it's incredible the kind of change that she's able to help create with people. Um, Interesting. I'm tapping yeah. my leg right now that you mentioned it. Just <laughs> oh, to see if it's doing leg. anything. <laughs> it's kind of like tapping or some places, I think on your face or whatever. It's like, it basically is supposed to, I think, get you out of your, you know, change your thought process essentially. Mm -hmm. um, but anyways, really interesting stuff. Um, so what is next for 100% pure? There's a lot going on. So, you know, we never take an investment. We're exploring that path right now uh, to bring us into our future. I really believe in the power of 
live selling. I was talking to someone in that space this morning, uh, another CEO about it. And there's a lot of, I would say a, a large amount of us that really believe this is the future of e-commerce is, you know, doing live selling where someone goes live and you yeah. can just hit a button and buy. No one's really mastered that in the US. Mm -hmm. But in China, that's how everything is done. Yeah. There's a company called Shop Shops, I think there, that um, a friend of mine from XRC Labs runs in China. Um, it's live stream. Yeah, that's how everyone buys. Interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I think that's the future e-commerce. We're going to lean in there. I think there's a blending of digital and brick and mortar. I think you need both. You know, you you, you see brands doing both. Yep. It's not. Some people felt like brick and mortar is dead. I don't feel that way. I feel like you kind of need both to be successful. And then as far as product development, we have a, you know, we brought manufacturing back. We went out of manufacturing and then we brought it back in house. And since, and we have a blended ecosystem. So we have some good partners we do manufacture through, but we're doing a lot more in-house than we've done in the past. And that's exciting for me because we're coming up with a lot of innovations in skincare. And we filed some patents for a new natural mascara nice. that we hope to launch next year that may be waterproof. We're going to put it through testing. So I think that's going to be a huge launch next year is if we can get that claim. I'm, I'm not sure it'll be at least water resistant, mm -hmm. but it will grow your lashes naturally. We're really good at natural formulations. And also we're going into supplements a little bit as well. So we're exploring the inner beauty is really important. Right. Great. Well, it sounds like super exciting stuff. I'm, uh, you know, I love what you guys are doing. I'm excited to see more and, um, and watch from the sidelines. But thank you so much for uh, being on the show and sharing your inspiring story. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Lee. I really appreciate it. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.